This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, science, and everything in between. And we love to tell your stories. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And our own Alex Cortez loves to bring us powerful stories about human freedom and the absence of it. And here's his latest. Peter Wolf grew up in the wake of World War II in Germany. In what was then a divided country, the Western nations of Britain, America, and France oversaw West Germany, and the Soviet Union oversaw the East, where Peter was. I enjoyed bicycling, and I found this old bicycle that I fixed up. I took that bike one time pretty far out in the country, and you were not allowed to travel too far away from your home without proper paperwork. So all of a sudden this car pulled up, a bunch of Russian soldiers in it, and they interrogated me where I was going. And I said I was just going for a ride. And they told me that I wasn't allowed to and that I needed to go back home. And they followed me. So this was my first encounter where police and soldiers stopped me from doing something that I enjoyed doing. And then later on they told my mother that I had gone too far. My mother scolded me in front of them, but privately she said, look, don't get these soldiers or the police upset. It's, it, you don't want to upset them. And I didn't quite understand all of that. You know, I was maybe 11 years old at the time. So it was very confusing to me why we were being so confined. In school, we were always told that Germany was a German democratic republic, that we were free to vote, free to do anything we wanted to. Of course, I would go with my mother to vote. And the process was, there was a man sitting on a desk, and my mother would lean over on that desk and she would put her signature next to the person that she wanted to vote for. And she told me that if she put the signature for the other person, who was not the favorite candidate, that the man in front of the desk would of course see that and make a mark in another book. And that was the book where you don't want to be in there because you would be ostracized and punished wherever possible, since everything was controlled by the government. Everything. So they had total control. You were allowed to vote, and you could choose which way you wanted to vote. But if you chose wrong, then you would be punished for it. And people were very much afraid all the time. So I was getting these conflicting dialogues, one at school, one at home, and you like to believe your parents, but of course you spend an awful lot of time at school and you really didn't know. You, you simply did not know what was true and what was not. It was very conflicting. Peter's parents knew that they wanted to illegally escape to West Germany and then to America. 
But young Peter wasn't sure. He was conflicted. We had relatives in America, and we had some pictures that we saw that they had mailed to us. And we saw America as something that was absolutely unbelievable. The fact that you could own a car, drive a car, you didn't have to have paperwork to go from one state to another. It was just unreal. And of course, in school, we were told that people were very oppressed in that country. It was mandatory for us to read Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a book written about America by an American author, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And that book portrays black Americans as living in squalor. And this is exactly what we were taught America was all about. Anything else we saw about America was fake propaganda. And that's what we believed. For the Soviets to use the sin of slavery to downplay their killing of at least 13 million of their own citizens is pretty rich. Meanwhile, Peter Wolf's family was about to become pretty poor. We had saved up a lot of money carefully so that we could use that money to bribe our way into the West. In order for the government to keep people back in East Germany, one day the government decided to negate all the savings that people had by simply changing the currency. They didn't tell anyone about it. You had a certain amount of time, one day, to transfer your money in the bank to a new currency which looked different. But if you had too much money that you had hoarded or saved up, the government, since you were not a good communist by having so much money, uh, declared it worthless. And we never really took it. Nobody took it to the bank if they had more than they were supposed to have. So we had a few hundred marks, perhaps, uh, in the bank that was converted, and the rest was lost. That money became worthless. And at that point, our family was very distraught over it. Peter's dad was so distraught that he ended his life. And that was a very traumatic experience. And when we come back, more of the Wolf's family story and what a story it is, not told enough here in this country in our schools, but told here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we return to Peter Wolf's story. His family is hoping to escape Soviet-controlled Eastern Germany and escape to the West and the Free West. This is before they put up the Berlin Wall, but it was still harrowing. If all three of us would have left, it would have caused too much suspicion. I was left behind at some neighbors, and my mother took my sister and worked herself towards the West German border. They were caught, and they were detained for a night at a soldier barracks. Now here was my mother and my 15-year-old sister. In the morning, they were let go and told to go back to East Germany. Instead, my mother went for a ways and then made a U-turn and snuck into the forest trying to get across the border. At that point, the soldiers saw them again and started shooting after them. So they were actually running, the two of them, across the border with soldiers shooting at them but they made it across, and my mother stayed in West Germany for about a week and eventually left my sister in West Germany with hopes that she would make her way over to America. She was 15 years old. She left her with some friends and said her goodbyes and came back. And when she came back, my mother was interrogated by the local police for several days by the Stasi, asked why my sister didn't come back. And my mother simply said that she didn't want to come back. And at that point, my mother was ostracized as a traitor. She was given different work assignments that were much more difficult. It was made very clear to her that my prospects would not include high school. I would have to go to work at some factory as an apprentice. A mark was put in her passport that would prevent her from going anywhere near the border, anywhere closer to 20 kilometers, because of course people thought that she might want to escape as well. It was made very, very clear to her that she would be put in prison Many people that we knew who had tried that would actually go to the gulags in Russia, be transferred into Siberia, and never be heard of again. The children that were left behind were often put into orphanages and then properly raised by the communist government. So that would have been my fate if my mother were caught anywhere near the border. She had to get rid of that mark in her passport but she didn't know what the mark was. So one day she spilled some ink on the passport. And then she said, oh no, how terrible. And she would hold the passport underneath the water, trying to get rid of the ink. And she would put this thing on in front of me and I didn't know any different. And she would pour the water over the passport and of course the passport got all wet at that point. So she turned the gas burner on and trying to dry up the passport after it got all wet. 
Well, lo and behold, the passport caught fire and some of the pages burned up. Well, this was all very carefully orchestrated because she wanted to uh, burn up the pages that had the mark in there. She knew that some of those pages had the mark, but she just didn't know what it was or where it was. It was a weekend and the local police station was already closed where you would normally get a new passport. We would go to the larger city nearby, Leipzig, and there she went into the police station and asked for another passport because it was close to Christmas time and she wanted to travel to a relative somewhere else in East Germany. Of course, the police officer said, sure, lady, no problem, just go to your local police station and they'll do it. They'll give you a new passport. And she says, no, 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 there's no time and I need to go there in the next few days. And the police said, men said, well, there's nothing we can do. Well, at that point, my mother had a tantrum. She just started wailing and crying and shouting, and I couldn't tell if it was real or not, but the policeman got all crazy about it, and my mother got crazy about it, and he called one of his superiors over, and finally, after my mother wouldn't budge, the superior said, look, let's, let's just process her a temporary passport until she can next week go and get her normal passport from her local police station. So they processed a temporary passport and the intent was for my mother to get that from that distant police station since they didn't really know her and wouldn't put that mark in that the local police station would surely put back in. So she ended up getting it. My mother had really orchestrated this very carefully. I was completely in the dark. I thought all of this was real. And the reason she did that was to shield me from maybe divulging if they asked me what was going on. And this was, of course, about four years after my sister had escaped. I remember very clearly Christmas Eve, I was playing with my friends downstairs. It was wintertime and I came up for lunch. And as I came up for lunch, in the bedroom on the bed was a small suitcase all packed up. And I was curious as to what that suitcase was all about. My mother had made me some lunch and she said, now Peter, I want you to be very careful what you say to your friends, but I want you to say goodbye to them after lunch. Go back downstairs and say goodbye. Tonight, we're leaving. I said, leaving? We're leaving our home. We're going, hopefully, to meet up with your sister. And she asked me also to put a toy. She said, pick your favorite toy and put it in the suitcase. I had a little electric train, train set, and I put that in there. Uh, I went back downstairs, said goodbye to my friends, didn't tell anyone anything of our plans. My mother had purchased a Christmas tree. She had decorated the Christmas tree so from the outside it looked as if we were celebrating Christmas as usual. And this was to avoid any suspicion with the neighbors. 
So, in the evening, she took me and the little suitcase, and we walked about two blocks to the local streetcar. We took the streetcar from our little town to the nearer, larger town, and there we boarded a train to Berlin. In Berlin, we got off the train and quickly went to a subway. In the subway, we bought a ticket that took us from East Berlin, where we were, to another section in East Berlin. But there was one stop that the subway would make in West Berlin. The intent was to get off there, but our ticket was actually took us back into the eastern sector. Now my mother, I didn't appreciate all of this, but my mother was taking a huge gamble by getting on the subway. If the identification in her passport included the mark, she was obviously closer than 20 kilometers from the border now, and she would have been arrested. So when we got on the subway, it was a moment of no return for her. I, I just can't even imagine what, what she committed to. But she did, and we got into the subway and there were a few other people in there. Train started moving. Pretty soon, the train got to the station just before the West Berlin station. When the doors opened, Russian soldiers came on, one in the front, one in the back with machine guns and an officer would walk in and interrogate various people for their paperwork. And what a scene Peter Wolf is setting up, his story, a story of Soviet totalitarianism and totalitarianism of all sorts. It's still around us everywhere in this world. Peter Wolf's story continues here on Our American Stories. story of Peter Wolf's escape and his family's escape from East Germany and Soviet-controlled East Germany with his mom. They're now on a train making their escape and suddenly Russian soldiers appear on board. There was a couple that sat in front of us and the Russian sergeant asked for their paperwork, looked through it, found it to be okay and started walking towards us. At that point, the couple gave a big sigh of relief, and they smiled at each other. The Russian sergeant in Russian mumbled, well, I wonder what they're smiling about. And of course, he mumbled it in Russian, but I understood what he was saying. And he was looking at me, 
And he realized that I understood what he was saying. And he said, Baruski, do you speak Russian? I said, Da. And at that point, my mother, who was holding my hand, started to squeeze my hand because she told me not to say a word to anyone. And here this Russian sergeant started talking to me. And he said to me in Russian, I wonder why these people are so happy and smiling. And I responded in Russian, I don't know. My mother didn't speak Russian, so she didn't know what I was saying. And here I was talking to the guy that was going to interrogate us. She was pale. The Russian soldier said, well, we better find out what they're so happy about. And he motioned to one of his soldiers, and they came and escorted the couple out. They never came back. At that point, he took the paperwork that my mother had, and he continued to talk to me in Russian. I told him about a pen pal I had in Moscow, and he complimented me on how well I spoke Russian, and he looked through the paperwork, eventually gave it back to my mother, and moved on. Of course, we didn't sigh. I knew that much. He went on and interrogated some other people, and eventually the Russian soldier left. The doors closed. The train started moving again. We stopped at the next stop, which was West Berlin. The doors opened. Just before they closed, my mother grabbed the little suitcase, grabbed me, and we snuck out the door. Doors closed. Here we were in West Berlin. We made it. My mother asked the local policeman where to go to, directed us to go to a uh, fugitive camp. And when we got there, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people, all with a little suitcase. Uh, many of them holding on to their children, having the same intention that we had. There were so many, in fact, that there wasn't enough room in the fugitive camp. We were put on a bus and taken to an old factory. There were about 100 bunk beds in a big room. And here it was Christmas Eve, there were children crying, mothers consoling their children. The men usually were snoring like crazy. And I remember crying myself to sleep because it was Christmas Eve and I didn't get any presents. <laughs> and I felt pretty sorry for myself. Every day, the heads of household would have to go from the old factory to the fugitive camp in a bus. After they handled their paperwork there in order to process their immigration to West Germany, in the evening the bus would come back and people would be reunited. Usually it was the husband that would leave and then in the evening come back. My mother would also be on that bus all the time, so it was just her and I. One day, one of those bus drivers, apparently, was paid off by the East Germans. And instead of taking the entire load of the bus to the fugitive camp, they went back to East Germany. And soldiers and police were waiting for them. 
we found out that all those heads of households had been recaptured. It was probably one of the most anguishing experiences I have ever experienced. The mothers and children left behind, they didn't know what to do. They had given up everything, and now what should they do? Several of them had befriended other families, and they gave their older children to those other families to take to the West. And the mother and the younger children would go back to the East. Who knows what would happen to them? The love that the wives had for their husbands, even though their life in East Germany would be miserable, they still knew that they wanted to be with them instead of just leaving them behind. And to leave your oldest child with strangers, hoping for the best for them, knowing that you would probably never see them again. And I still have trouble understanding how those people dealt with that. We had legal documentation to immigrate to America, and we bought a one-way ticket on the MS Berlin, which was one of the last immigrant boats to leave from Germany to New York. It was a 10-day journey. We probably had the bunk in the lowest compartment, way down in the bowels of the boat. And on the ninth day, the captain told us that if we wanted to get up early in the morning, we may be able to see the Statue of Liberty as we came into New York. And I probably got up at two or three in the morning and tiptoed up on the top of the boat. And there was not a sound up there. No one was up there. It was foggy, it's misty, just a real serene environment tiptoed up and I was trying to work my way towards the front of the boat and hung on to various railings when all of a sudden I bumped into someone and then I bumped into someone else and I didn't think anybody was up there and as I got closer to the front of the boat I realized that instead of me being one of the first people to be up there I was probably one of the last people. Hundreds of people were pressed against the railing, straining their eyes, wanting to see that Statue of Liberty. It represent hope, freedom, and liberty to all these immigrants. Hardly any of them spoke the same language. And I kind of squeezed myself up to the railing and sure enough, as the mist slowly raised, first you could see the light of the Statue of Liberty and then the statue itself. Not a sound, people were completely quiet. Every time I tell the story, I get very emotional about it. And Peter Wolf was one of the reasons why the Berlin Wall went up 
More accurately, he was one of the millions of reasons why up to four million people escaped the communist East to the free West until the Soviets finally said enough and built that wall. When we come back, the rest of Peter Wolf's remarkable journey to his new home. Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Peter Wolf's story. His family had escaped Soviet-controlled East Germany, and now they had made their way to, of all places, Chicago. My sister set up an apartment in a community that was about 95% Jewish. And here, this was in the 1960s, not many years after the Second World War, this German family moves in, and I didn't understand, but most of the kids didn't want to have anything to do with me. But it wasn't until uh, some time later when the teacher came to me and she said, Peter, we're going to be looking at a movie today about Germany. And if you don't want to watch that movie, it's okay. And I said, why wouldn't I want to watch it? And she said, well, it shows some bad things that the German people did. And I said, it wasn't me. And she said, okay, you can stay if you want. And I stayed and the movie started playing. I visited Buchenwald concentration camp. And all of a sudden the scene showed these emaciated people in concentration camps and German soldiers. I didn't know what to do. I, I had no comprehension. And the movie depicted that these were mostly Jewish people in concentration camps by the Germans. Do believe me when I tell you that the reality was indescribably worse than these pictures. And all of a sudden, I understood <laughs> that my classmates were from Jewish families. Many of them perhaps had lost loved ones in that environment. I had never been taught that before. My mother never talked about it. School in Germany it was never talked about. I was so distraught that I simply got up and ran out of the school. And I think I stayed home for about two weeks. I, I just couldn't face these kids anymore. I, I felt so bad. After about a week or two, Leon Stern came to my apartment and said, Peter, 
uh, we want you to come back. I said, well, how could you? Look what my people did. And uh, he was very kind. I remember he invited me that evening to his house. And his parents were very, very kind to me and accepted me. Later on, I found out that they too had lost loved ones in Germany. But I felt accepted and I went back to school. And many of the children there then, I think they must have been taught by some of the teachers that it wasn't me that did those things. But many of the children came and uh, befriended me. I was invited to their parties. As a matter of fact, Leon and one particular other feller, Joe Kaufman, became one of my best friends. I was very anxious to be naturalized. I wanted to be a citizen of America. I embraced America. I wanted to speak English very well. I wanted to be an American. I wanted to do everything American. I had passed my exam, received my naturalization. I took my oath, and when I returned from the naturalization office, Leon greeted me at my school, and he said, hey, let's celebrate a little bit, let's go and have lunch together. So we went to the lunchroom, and lo and behold, when I opened the door, I think the whole school was there. All the classes were let out to celebrate that I became a naturalized citizen. Again, you know, this is a 95% Jewish school, and they all rallied around me that I became a naturalized citizen. A few years ago, I was on a plane ride when I sat next to Michael Reagan, President Reagan's son. It blew my mind, and he explained how he was going to go back to Germany on November 9th, 2009, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down, and he was going to dedicate a room of paraphernalia from President Reagan to the museum over there at Checkpoint Charlie. I said, interesting you should mention Berlin because 50 years ago this year, I escaped through Berlin to come to America. His jaw sort of hung open and he said, really? I don't think he believed me, but I told him yes, and I told him I would send him some material, and I did. And a week later he called me and he said, Peter, I want you to be part of a delegation to go back to Germany this November and be there when I dedicate the room in the Checkpoint Charlie Museum. My son, 29-year-old son, and I, we got a plane ticket and we went back to Germany. This was the first time I went back in 50 years to East Germany. My mother always told me never to write to anyone in East Germany out of fear that they would get in trouble. So I lost all contact with my friends, my relatives, everyone. I visited the 
fugitive camp that we went to when we escaped, and it was still there. They made a museum out of it. And my son didn't understand that my emotions were very tender when I walked in there because it was just like 50 years had gone by at a blink of an eye. And there's a little statue in front of the fugitive camp of a little bronze suitcase because that is the thing that was common to all those fugitives. We uh, also traveled to my hometown and on the last day in Germany, we were there about 10 days, by coincidence, I touched base with somebody at my hometown who knew somebody that I went to school with. On the 10th day, I called up that lady and she said, yes, I got his number here, call it. So I did, and it was Gunto Titter. And I remember it when I called it, and I said, this is Peter, Peter Wolf. And I think he was jumping up and down. He, he just, I could tell on his voice that he must have been jumping up and down for joy to hear my voice. So he said, Peter, if you can, we have a dinner tonight, and most of your classmates will be there. Can you come? I said, of course, I'll be there. And we all met, and what a reunion it was. Gundur Tittel mentioned to me that they've been meeting almost every year as a class reunion, and he showed me the pamphlet from the previous year. And he said, now, Peter, don't get upset when you look at this. And I said, well, why should I get upset? And I thumbed through it, and at the very end, it said in memorandum, Peter Wolf. In other words, I had died. And I said, what's this? And he said, two years after you left, the communists had told us that you and your sister died in a car accident. And that was to prevent any of us trying to reach out and maybe help escape. And I sort of understood at that point why they all wanted to meet me, of course, to see the ghost of Peter Wolf. <laughs> at the very end, I asked uh, one of them, I said, what was it like to live in East Germany all these years? And the table became very quiet. No one said a word until one person spoke up and he said, Peter, you would have had to live here to know what it was like. And then he said, Peter, what was it like to live in America? What do you tell someone what freedom is like? You can't put it into words. So all I could muster was to say, you would have had to live there to know what it was like. And a great job as always, Alex, and great job on the production by Robbie. And thanks to Peter Wolf, and thanks to the victimsofcommunism.org. That's where we got the piece from, victimsofcommunism.org, and you can hear so many other stories there. And by the way, Peter does speeches for them all around the country. Imagine hearing this man and this story at your school. Again, go to victimsofcommunism.org. And when people talk about places like Cuba, 
places where you cannot escape, places where there are walls that you can't get out of. Well, we're talking about a prison camp at this point, folks. And that's what East Germany was. It was a prison camp long before the wall even went up. And when it came down, well, what a story that was. Peter Wolf's story, and in a way, so many refugees of that time, here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the finer things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their great online courses that are free. Go to hillsdale.edu. And today, we have George Will celebrating... Yogi Berra, who on this day in history in 1951, won the American League MVP. He did it three times. And up until he won the MVP, only one other catcher in baseball history in the American League had ever won it. Here's George Will writing about one of his heroes, Yogi Berra. A high drive, that's trouble. And Yogi Berra, tough run. Avenue. It ain't over till it's over. 90% of this game is half another. When you come to the fork in the road, take it. It's deja vu all over again. And the Yankees are champions. And look at Barrow. Piggyback Rat and Pop Cazala. The 18-year-old U.S. Navy enlistee, thinking it sounded less boring than the dull training he was doing in 1944, volunteered for service on what he thought an officer had called rocket ships. Actually, they were small, slow, vulnerable boats used as launching pads for rockets to give close-in support for troops assaulting beaches. The service on those boats certainly was not boring. At dawn on June 6, 1944, that sailor was a few hundred yards off Omaha Beach. Lawrence Peter Barra, who died recently at 90, had a knack for being where the action was. When he stood, as a catcher, he spent a lot of time crouching at baseball's most physically and mentally demanding position, five foot seven inches, he confirmed the axiom that the beauty of baseball is that a player does not need to be seven feet tall or seven feet wide. Barra swings, and that one's going to leave the ballpark. Well, what do you know? Larry Barra, they call him Yogi, his very first time at the plate in the major leagues against the A's. And what does he do? He hits a home run. The shortstop during Yogi's first Yankee years was an even smaller Italian-American. 150-pound Phil Rizzuto listed at a generous 5 feet 6. 
Yogi had, as sports writer Alan Barra says in his book, Yogi Berra, Eternal Yankee, the winningest career in the history of American sports. Hall of Famer, catcher, Yogi Berra. He played on Yankee teams that went to the World Series 14 times in 17 years. He won 10 World Series rings. No other player has more than nine. He won three MVP awards. Only Barry Bonds has more with seven, but four of them probably tainted by performance-enhancing drugs. Ripped into right field. It's a one-run game as Bonds gets his second of the series. That's the furthest ball I've ever seen hit. In seven consecutive seasons, 1950 through 1956, Yogi finished in the top four in MVP voting. He grew up in what he and others called the Dago Hill section of St. Louis, when the Italian-Americans who lived there did not take offense at the name. They had bigger problems. Biographer Alan Barra notes that in 1895 advertisement seeking labor to build a New York reservoir, the ad said whites would be paid $1.30 to $1.50 a day, colored workers $1.25 to $1.40, and Italians $1.15 to $1.25. The term WAP may have begun as an acronym for the phrase without papers, as many Italians were when they arrived at Ellis Island. American sports and ethnicity have been interestingly entangled. The name Fighting Irish was originally a disparagement by opponents of Notre Dame, which for many years had problems filling its football schedule because of anti-Catholic bigotry. But sports also have been stolvents of a sense of apartness felt by ethnic groups. In 1923, the Sporting News, which for many decades was described as the Bible of baseball, except by baseball fans who described the Bible as the Sporting News of religion, called the national pastime the essence of the nation. Quote, in a democratic, Catholic, real American game like baseball, there has been no distinction raised except tacit understanding that a player of Ethiopian descent is ineligible. The Mick, the Sheeny, the Wop, the Dutch and the Chink, the Cuban, the Indian, the Jap, or the so-called Anglo-Saxon, his nationality is never a matter of moment if he can pitch, hit, or field. Ah, diversity. In 1908, the Sporting News said this about a Giants rookie, Charlie Buck Herzog. Quote, The long-nosed rooters are crazy whenever young Herzog does anything noteworthy. Cries of Herzog, Herzog, good boy, Herzog, go up regularly. And there would be no let up even if a million ham sandwiches suddenly fell among these believers in percentages and bargains. David Moranis, in his biography of the Pirates' Roberto Clemente, the first Puerto Rican superstar, notes that as late as 1971, Clemente's 17th season, one sports writer still quoted him in phonetic English, quote, if I have my good arm, the ball gets there a little quicker. In 1962, Alvin Dark, manager of the San Francisco Giants, banned the speaking of Spanish in the clubhouse. Today, with three of the most common surnames in baseball being Martinez, Rodriguez, and Gonzalez, some managers speak Spanish. Yogi's great contemporary, the Dodgers catcher Roy Campanella, another three-time MVP, was the son of an African-American mother and Italian-American father. 
Today, with two Italian-Americans on the Supreme Court, it is difficult to imagine how delighted Italian-Americans were with their first national celebrity, the elegant center fielder on baseball's most glamorous team, Joe DiMaggio, the son of a San Francisco fisherman. DiMaggio was big Dago to his teammates. Yogi was little Dago and became the nation's most beloved sports figure. As Yogi said when Catholic Dublin elected a Jewish mayor, only in America. And thank you, George, for that great reading and for really digging in as you do so well in 800 words or less. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history in 1951, Yogi Berra won the American League MVP. More after these messages. Again, this is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and this next story comes from, well, Jesse's mind. He pulled this out, and it's an American dreamer's story, folks. We love telling the stories of folks who start businesses. Hey, musicians are an American dream story. We've done Mario Andretti's, a race car driver, and his dream, and how he made it happen. His family, displaced in Italy after World War II, comes here with nothing and creates Andretti Racing. And you can hear all of our material on ouramericannetwork.org. Go there, sign up for our newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of ours each week. We'll send them right into your box. You can read them or you can listen to them. We transcribe all of these stories for your pleasure as well. Some people just like to read it. Others like to listen. And this story again is Jesse's, and it's about Brian Scudamore, an American-born entrepreneur and the CEO of Got Junk, a company with $200 million in yearly revenue that repurposes and recycles what many of us throw away in the trash. He gave a speech recently where he talked about the things he learned while building what has become the world's largest junk removal service. Brian's story starts off like a lot of entrepreneurial stories in that he was more interested in starting a business than going to school. 1989, right out of high school, one course short of graduation, I went and started the Rubbish Boys, saw a beat-up old pickup truck and a McDonald's drive through and I went, hey, There's a great idea. My inspiration for starting that business was it was simple. I didn't finish high school. I wasn't that smart. I could load junk into a truck. I had $1,000 in the bank. I could go buy a truck. I spray painted the phone number 738 junk on the side, knocked on doors, alleys, laneways. Someone had a pile of junk. I'd introduce myself and offer to cart it away for a fee. That basic business model was to help pay my way through college. Because I didn't finish high school, I remember my father said, I'm not going to help you with your college education. I don't think it would be a good return on investment. You know, you can't finish grade 12. Why should we give you some money? And I thought, you know, that's fair. And that taught me something. I had to do it on my own. So by starting the Rubbish Boys, started making money, started to fund my way through college, felt I was learning an awful lot about business, running a business. And it was just that on the streets learning. And I made the bold decision to drop out. We learn that Brian's business began to grow, but it wasn't enough to keep Brian interested in what he was doing. So 1991, I had a couple of years under my belt. The business was working. I was making money. um, And I 
decided that I felt bored. I felt like, you know, this is a junk business, nothing glamorous about it. And I tried to sell my business. Had a deal in writing with someone for five grand. Um, not a lot of money, but it felt like uh, enough at the time. And the deal fell through at the 11th hour. And I just felt crushed. But the lesson I learned slightly after that was that the lows precede the highs. The tide goes in, the tide comes out. The sun rises, the sun sets. There's going to be bad times, there's going to be tough times, but it's what you learn from those to help turn them into the good times. The following year, when I stuck with my business because I couldn't sell it, felt like I was sort of forced to stick with it, that was still good money, uh, my girlfriend at the time said, why don't you go to the press and tell them your story? And they said, what story? And she said, well, you created your own job, it's kind of cool, people like entrepreneurs. So I went out and told my story to the press and we got on the front page of the province newspaper, our, our head newspaper in the city, on the next day with our big truck, our phone number, 100 calls within, a, within 24 hours, and that was a bit of a high. I was like, okay, free press, didn't cost a thing. Uh, let's do more of this. But with the highs came the lows, and Brian's next difficult step, he'd have to fire everyone at the company. In 1994, I think that was the first real lesson that I experienced as a manager or as a leader. And I think leadership is a, a real important word. It's everything in a business. I had the wrong people. I was leading the wrong people in my business. I had a half a million dollars in revenue, which was exciting. I felt good about it, but I stopped having fun. I wasn't working with people that I enjoyed working with any longer. I don't think they respected me. I didn't really respect them. Brought them all in, a, in an office one day and sat all 11 down because I wanted just to get it over with and rip off the Band-Aid. And I fired everybody at once. But I took full, <laughs> it wasn't funny, you laugh, it, it was awful. Most of them were bigger than me. And I said, listen, you know, you're a linebacker, you're big, but I'm still firing you. And you know what the deal is here is I, as your leader, have let you down. I either didn't hire the right people or I didn't train you, didn't spend enough time with you. I didn't give you the support and direction you need to be successful. So let me be clear, this is my fault. And I believed it. And that day I came up with a mantra that it's all about people, finding the right people and treating them right. In fact, at our head office, the Junction in Vancouver, it says it's all about people with my name below it as our commitment to always find the right people and always treat them right. So one piece of uh, wisdom, I guess, from my own learnings was Never, ever, ever compromise on the people you bring into your organization. I've made mistakes. I said it was okay, and I said don't repeat them. I've certainly repeated them, and every time I do, it's the worst mistake to make because it ends up costing you time and money. And by the way, we hear this mantra over and over again from Bernie Marcus, who is the co-founder of Home Depot, straight to Mario Andretti and his racing crew, and he had the best. Because my goodness, a racer without a great car and without a great pit crew is nothing. While his company was experiencing initial success, and after realizing that he'd hired the wrong people, Brian created a vision for his company that would have more impact than he could have ever imagined. Now, 1998, I came up with a concept that I didn't realize at the time. I was on, on another low. I went to my parents' uh, summer cottage, sat out on the dock, September 17, 1998. Sunny day, but it wasn't sunny in my brain. I felt depressed, I felt down, all my other entrepreneur buddies were building bigger businesses. And I just said, you know, junk removal again, I don't have the brains, I don't have the money, I don't know if this is what I want to build. And then I said, hold on here a second. I pulled out a piece of paper and I sat out on that dock and I wrote on both sides, 
what could the future of 1-800-GOT-JUNK look like if only I believed in possibility? Not all the things that were in the way, mostly me, but what was the possibility? And I wrote, we will be in the top 30 metros in North America by the end of 2003. We'll be on the Oprah Winfrey show. This is what our people will look like, feel like, and act like. This is the culture. And I listed it all out. And it really was sort of a Jerry Maguire moment. And I wrote almost my manifesto. And I started sharing it with people. And I started buying into my own uh, vision or painted picture. And I went, wow. I was ready to give up on my business, maybe sell again or quit but I chose to believe in my vision and rally others around me. People that believed stayed on board and became a part of it. People that didn't believe left and said, this isn't for me. It was the ultimate leadership tool. I had a clear vision, a clear painted picture, knew where I was going. I guess my lessons learned, my own experience, if you have a clear vision and know where you're going, if you believe in it and never question that vision so that others that come into your business it uh, doesn't matter how small or large your business is, if you don't have a clear vision, I don't think you'll get to where you want to go. You don't have a clear picture. So you need people to follow. And then finding the right people. People have often said to me, well, how do you find the right people? And there's books on it, and you can get checklists and all this sort of stuff. I keep it relatively simple. And I sit there and I go, okay, first and foremost, I'm hiring for culture. Is this someone I'd want to have over to my house for a barbecue? Is this someone that I'd want to go have a pint with after a, a busy, crazy day or some cool celebration? Let's start there, because you spend an awful lot of time at work. I want to enjoy my time with that person and know that they're a cultural fit. If they're a cultural fit, then you dive into the next level and look at their skills. But I think if someone believes in your vision and they've got cultural alignment, they'll figure everything else out. It's not that hard. In closing, Brian shares a quote that was used in an advertising campaign by Apple. So the quote goes something like this. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They move, they push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see them as genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can actually change the world are the ones who do. And that was a great find, Jesse. Brian Scudamore's story got junk. We've done so many of these American Dreamers stories, some of our recent favorites. Jake Burton and what he did to revolutionize a sport called snowboarding. And the Cedars brothers, Brian and Roy, and they gave us Yeti, the Yeti Coolers. Our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's a great music story. And we're calling this one The Billion Dollar Quintet. Here's Greg Hengler with more. The Traveling Wilburys had a short history, but a long past. The creation of the rock group was a fortunate accident. Nicknamed the Billion Dollar Quintet, the five musical legends, three of whom were in their 40s, had gathered to assist a former Beatle in writing and recording what was intended as a throwaway B-side track. Tom Petty at age 38, whose career was at its peak, was by far the youngest member of the group. She's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus, in America too. Roy Orbison, at 52, who was called the greatest singer in the world by Elvis, was the oldest. Here's Roy singing You Got It, the hit he co-wrote with future fellow Wilburys, Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty. Anything you want, you got it. And then there was former Beatle, George Harrison. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say it's all right. In 1963, a young Bob Dylan would ask future bandmate Roy Orbison to record the song he wrote, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Orbison would later regret his decision to reject this Dylan masterpiece. I'm a thinking and a wondering, walking down the road. I once loved a woman, a child I am told. I give her my heart, but she wanted my soul. But don't think twice, it's all right. Finally, there's probably the least known member of the traveling Wilburys but no less talented. Singer-songwriter and record super-producer Jeff Lynne. Lynne co-founded the Electric Light Orchestra, or ELO, a rock band inspired by the Beatles' complex orchestral sound of the late 60s. Between 1972 and 1986, Jeff Lynne's ELO put more singles in the top 40 charts than any other band in the world. George Harrison's career was on fire in the late 1980s. His comeback album, Cloud Nine, was certified platinum in the U.S., thanks to the production work of Jeff Lynne. Then, in a pivotal moment in rock history, Warner Brothers told Harrison he needed to record a B-side track for his single, This Is Love. On the evening before the recording session, Harrison dined at a French restaurant in Los Angeles with Jeff Lynne, who had brought along Roy Orbison. With the three legends sitting together at one table, Harrison asked Orbison and Lynne to help him record the B-side. They agreed. For the sake of convenience, 
Lynn suggested they record the track at Bob Dylan's garage studio. Harrison telephoned Dylan, who agreed to the idea. Needing a guitar that he had left with Tom Petty, Harrison called and was pleasantly surprised that Petty also wanted to attend. Drums, please! The recording session took place on April 5th, 1988. After dining on some barbecued chicken in Dylan's backyard garden, the five musicians worked out the song's lyrics. Thankfully for us, George Harrison understood that history was being made, and so he took out his personal video recorder and began shooting. Does it say record in here, George? Is it supposed to say record in the viewfinder? Yeah. Oh, I see the top. Oh, yeah, there it goes. Here's George Harrison. The thing about the Wilburys for me is if we'd have tried to plan that or if anybody had tried to, you know, say, let's form this band and get these people in it, it would never happen. It's impossible. My guitar was at Tom Petty's house, so Tom, Jeff picked me up. We went over to Bob's. I got the first line. He said, Bean Beat Up, Battered Around. Bean Beat Up and Battered Around. And then... Wow, and they just kept coming with all these lines. <laughs> and uh, there was Bob was saying, oh, what's it called? What's it about? And I finally saw behind his door this big box with a sticker on it saying Handle with Kerr. I said, Handle with Kerr? He said, oh, yeah, good. I liked the song and the way it had turned out with all these people on it so much. I just carried it around in my pocket for ages thinking, well, what can I do with this thing? And the only thing to do I could think of was do another nine, make an album. Here's Tom Petty. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a real good idea because it had really been such magic doing the first track. Petty recalled how the group's lineup was finalized. We all jumped in a car to go see Roy play in Anaheim. All four of us ran into Roy's dressing room and said, We want you to be in our band, Roy. He said, That would be great. Harrison made the final proposal official by dropping to his knees and formally asking Orbison to join the band. The five men soon celebrated with a band meeting at Denny's on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Dylan proposed they call the band Roy and the Boys, but they settled on the quirky name The Traveling Wilburys. All five men are rhythm guitarists, but there are no excessive solos, and the boys did a fantastic job at sharing the spotlight. Harrison did emerge as the chief Wilbury, and when the band returned to record the rest of their album, his video recorder was on again to capture the memories, starting with Tom Petty's arrival on day one. All in a day's work for a Wilburn. And we had like nine or ten days that we knew we could get Bob for. And uh, everybody else was relatively free. So we just said, well, let's do it. We'll just write us tune a day and do it that way. It was very exciting. We were in Dave Stewart's house. And it was a nice environment because you could kind of sit outside. It was warm and the doors were always open. So we set up in his kitchen. It wasn't soundproof or anything. And we just put like five chairs around the kitchen and then put the microphones up. 
And, uh, and that's it, so all them guitar parts, you know, all them acoustic guitars were just in this kitchen. Here's Roy Orbison. We did from music, that's what it was all about. There wasn't a lot of deciding of what to do, not a lot of time spent planning out anything. So we just uh, wrote the best songs that we could write and uh, sang them as best we could. There's Barbara and I got out of the car. Oh, no, she was long and tall. She was oh, tall. short and fat. <laughs> <laughs> she was dressed to kill. Yeah, that's good. She was out to hill. give me a thrill. She was over the hill. She was dressed to kill. She was over the hill. Here's Jeff Lynn. Just sitting around in a circle, like five of us just strumming acoustic guitars and coming up with a song in, in like a couple of hours that was almost ready to record, you know, and then recording it like on the evening. It's pretty sort of unbelievable stuff. I looked at her eyes. They were full of surprise. They were full of surprise. Here's Tom Petty recording the song Last Night as the band members look on. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the billion-dollar quintet, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And to sign up for all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and uh, hit our email list and we'll get to you and let you know what we're doing here on the show. And now let's return to the billion dollar quintet, the story of the traveling Wilburys. Sometimes we'd sing the same song, you know, just to see who sounded good or if this key fits somebody. And that was a lot of the fun of and, and George would kind of audition us, which could be really intimidating, you know, because, like, you know, Roy Orbison had sing the song, and then they'd send you out to sing it, you know. And it's like, well, damn, that's really intimidating. Tweeter and the Monkey Man was recorded in only two takes and was notable for its many references to Bruce Springsteen's songs. Here's Harrison discussing the Dylan recording as we also hear Dylan getting feedback. Tweet and the Monkey Man was like really Tom, Petty and uh, Bob. Well, Jeff and I were there too, but we were just sitting around in the kitchen and he, for some reason, was talking about all this stuff which didn't make much sense to me. You know, it was that Americana kind of stuff. And we got a tape cassette and put it on and then transcribed everything they were saying. It was just fantastic watching him do it because he had like one take warming himself up and on take two he sang that tweet and the monkey man right through and that's it let's get the nearest souvenir stand 
George Harrison and Roy Orbison first met in May 1963 when the Beatles were scheduled as the opening act for Orbison. What Orbison did not know at the time was that the Fab Four's second single, Please Please Me, had been written by John Lennon in an attempt to emulate Orbison. Ringo Starr would later admit Roy Orbison was the only act that the Beatles didn't want to follow. Here's Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne discussing Roy Orbison as Roy records the Traveling Wilburys tune, Not Alone Anymore. If you're just sitting on the sofa working on a song and Roy's singing, even when he sang soft, it's such a tone, such a sound, you know, such a, a gift, really. We used to always tell him, Roy, you must be the, the best singer in the world. And he'd say, yeah. Jeff Lynn's production skills always makes a great track even better. hated the notion of the supergroup, which were popular in the 1970s. I never meant to be so bad to you. They wanted to soften the notion that they fit into this category. After all, most so-called supergroups don't exactly live up to the term. Michael Palin, one of the members of the comedy group Monty Python, was hired by Harrison to write the band's fictional biography. Palin chronicled the short story of five half-brothers who had one father, but five different mothers. Consequently, out of sheer self-amusement, all five members of the group decided to use aliases. Their real names did not appear anywhere on the album or cover. Here's Harrison and Lynn discussing the bittersweet track, Congratulations. 
the only Wilbury song Dylan has performed in concert. One of the most amazing things ever about the Wilburys was this holes apart thing of Roy and Bob Dylan. That's what I thought was wonderful, the best singer and the best lyricist, and both in the same group. End of the Line became the album's second single. Orbison stated at the time, I've been rediscovered by young kids who had never heard of me before the Wilburys. Pretty woman walking down the street. But just four days before they shot the music video for End of the Line, and just three weeks after the album's release, Roy Orbison suffered a fatal heart attack. Although he had complained of chest pains over the previous month, mentioning the discomfort to his close friend Johnny Cash, Orbison did not take the symptoms seriously. Here's Tom Petty. Roy went out on top, and, and I'm sure he knew that. The last conversation I had with him was a couple of days before he died on the phone, and he was just so thrilled that the Wilburys had gone platinum, and he was just, isn't it great? It's great. We all felt that Roy was a real special part of the group, and it was just our ace in the hole to have that voice come in. And he was so nice, you know, and it was uh, so painful when he died. The video for End of the Line was shot inside a vintage passenger car on a moving train. Maybe somewhere down the road away. During Orbison's vocal solos, the camera focused on a framed portrait of the singer, which was perched near a weathered rocking chair that held a resting, upright guitar. Orbison became the first musician since Elvis in 1977 to land two posthumous albums in the top five. And the Traveling Wilburys album, Handle With Care, would also win accolades such as a Grammy and were ranked number two by Rolling Stone in the category of Best New American Band, right behind Guns N' Roses. Unfortunately, the band never lived up to the traveling aspect of their name. They never toured, not one live appearance. Here's Tom Petty, George Harrison, and Roy Orbison. The whole experience was just some of the best days of my life, really. She wrote a long letter. And I think it probably was for us all. On a short piece of paper. The thing I guess would be hardest for people to understand is what good friends we were. It really had very little to do with combining a bunch of famous people. It was a bunch of friends that just happened to be really good at making music. None of this would have happened without him. It was George's band. It was always George's band. And it was a dream he'd had for a long time. From my point of view, I just tried to preserve our relationship. I worked so hard to make sure that, you know, all the guys who were in that band and, and consequently on record and film, their friendship wasn't abused. Just to preserve our friendship, 
That was the underlying contribution, I think, what I was trying to do. The traveling Wilburys remain a cherished part of rock lore. The gathering of five rock legends offered a lesson. Some supergroups really can succeed, make great music, and sell lots of records. They would record just two albums and release 25 songs. In its list of the best albums of the 1980s, Rolling Stone placed the Traveling Wilburys' first album at number 70. Petty's solo effort, Full Moon Fever, which was the best-selling album of his career, and an album also produced by Jeff Lynne, came in at 92. What Remains of the Traveling Wilburys is a mystique of unfulfilled possibilities, much like a rock band that does not come out for an encore, even as the fans remain standing on their feet, clapping wildly and cheering at the top of their lungs. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. <laughs>